Hi, it's Fraser here. As regular listeners will know by now, Spiked's podcasts, essays, articles, and videos are free in every sense of the word. Spiked exists to fight for freedom. And in 2020, freedom has never been more threatened. Lockdown threatens our right to free assembly and free movement, while cancel culture and identity politics threaten our right to free speech and free thought. Democracy, that most important right of a free people, is similarly under siege. Spiked wants to challenge these illiberal and authoritarian trends, but we can't do it without your help. It's donations from our listeners and readers that allow us to keep up these fights and to take our message to a growing audience. So, if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to Spiked. One-off donations are fantastic, but regular donations are even better. Just £5 per month can make an enormous difference to our work. Donating to Spiked is really easy to do. Just go to our website at spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the rule of six, the battle over Brexit and the rage against JK Rowling. You must not meet socially in groups of more than six and if you do, you will be breaking the law. The rule of six is about making sure that, you know, people are being conscientious. If they think there's a gathering of concern, they should call the non-emergency number and let the police know. And the last line of defence is for national action. The rule of six officially came into force in England this week in response to the rising number of coronavirus cases. It's now illegal to gather for social purposes in groups of more than six people. People in England have also been explicitly banned from mingling with other groups of six while at an authorised gathering. A number of towns and cities are still living under some form of local lockdown. Households in Birmingham, for instance, are not allowed to mix at all, while pubs and restaurants in the northeast are being put under a curfew. Rumours are swirling around about a possible curfew for the whole of England, and there is even talk of a second lockdown. Tom, uh, what have you made of the new restrictions? Well, I think they've been horrendous. And as we were talking about last week, it's just so depressing that, you know, six months since lockdown began, you're still seeing the police effectively being ordered into parks to break up picnickers of seven or eight or nine. I mean, it's it's a ridiculous, illiberal state of affairs. And the fact that already we're seeing discussions of a second lockdown amongst government, Boris Johnson saying that if we don't follow these new restrictions, that tougher measures are on the way. There's a lot of talk about curfews, potentially even in London. And I think we've talked a lot on this podcast about how the justification for lockdown changed over time. Mm. You know, originally it was to stop the NHS from being overwhelmed. It was presented as a potentially quite short-term matter. And then since then, it's just morphed into this way in which the outbreak is going to be managed indefinitely, it feels like. But there's also a kind of changing meaning of lockdown as well in so many ways. It's kind of interesting how Boris Johnson is effectively saying, we've got to lock you down now so we don't have to lock you down later. You know, where the <laughs> where the line between enforced social distancing and full-on lockdown is, you know, is something that we could debate. But I think it's quite striking that especially when you've got Bolton and the Northeast going into lockdown now, I think Dan Hodges made this joke on Twitter this week where he said, you know, we're not going to have a national lockdown, we're just going to have everywhere in local lockdowns at the 
same time. So it's just <laughs> quite depressing how all of these measures are seeming to pile up even so quickly. And again, it's I think we talked about this last week where the authoritarian policies are kind of being proposed. And when they fail to do what it is that they're supposed to do, either because they're unenforceable or because when you do have a virus spreading throughout the country already, to actually suppress it indefinitely is, is something that's almost impossible. Even New Zealand shows that. Um, but again, the failure of it just gets blamed on us for non-compliance. Mm. And then more restrictions are brought in to tackle it, even if these restrictions don't make any, any sense. I mean, all of this talk of curfews this week, and public health experts coming out and saying, yes, because the more time people spend in pubs, the more drunk they get, therefore the more likely they are not to observe social distancing. It's ridiculous. They'll just People will just go to the pub earlier. If it shuts at 10pm, <laughs> they'll show up a bit earlier than they did previously. And when they leave, they'll probably go back to one of each other's houses. This is completely moronic, the idea that someone who might previously go to the pub at nine o'clock, say, will just go for one hour because of this restrictions being brought in. And again, seeing in the past week, Matt Hancock and the government talk about how we need to follow the example of Belgium in relation to getting a grip on this alleged second wave, given the fact that their numbers have gone a slightly different way to France and Spain and elsewhere. Belgium had one of the worst per capita deaths in the entire world. You know, it's something that's not talked about very much, just because we weren't seemingly allowed to talk about per capita deaths for a long time, because Britain for a while looked better on those metrics. But it just strikes me as so strange that we're told we should be following this Belgian model. Meanwhile, we're seeing more and more news from Sweden, more and more encouraging statistics suggesting that again they're not experiencing this rise and they had always had a far more liberal voluntary policy which they said was more sustainable and at the moment it seems like they're being proven right so yeah it's depressing from a civil liberties perspective and just from a general social perspective that all of these restrictions are creeping back in and yet again it's not even clear as if these things are justified or they're going to work on their own terms. Well, I think one thing worth celebrating is that you mentioned Sweden and Sweden has been taken off the official uh, quarantine list. Unlike all of these countries that followed uh, <laughs> lockdowns, the government has now declared Sweden safe to visit. So you can go to Sweden. There are no masks there. You know, the restaurants and pubs have been open the whole time. They're soon to be allowing mass gatherings of up to 500 people. They're going to start letting people back into care homes as well soon because, you know, that's the extent to which they believe this problem is now over. And you contrast that with Britain or, you know, other European countries like France, Spain and, and Belgium and even Italy to a certain extent where there is this kind of rising number of cases and fears that governments are going to impose more and more restrictions. So it really shows, certainly at this stage, that Sweden, its model has proven to be much better than what we've done. But it's a, it's a kind of mirror image of the initial lockdown, because I remember back in March, we were watching, you know, the numbers of deaths rising in Italy, and everyone being very afraid of, you know, that that was going to happen here. And so what did every journalist call for? What did the government say? Well, in order to avoid being like Italy, we have to act like Italy and lock down and adopt their policy. Now it's the same with Belgium. You know, we don't want to be like Belgium, so let's copy their behaviour. It's just the most bizarre logic I've ever come across. But I suppose once you accept the kind of logic of lockdown, you know, where do you go from there? They see rising cases and, and they impose restrictions. There seems to be no kind of way of breaking through that that very destructive pattern. Ella, your thoughts? Well, it's ironic that this introduction of the rule of six was supposed to be about clarity. So like I remember when Boris Johnson first announced it at the press conference, he sounded almost like a dad at the end of his tether, you know, like telling the nation, okay, you're going to get it this time. Forget everything else. It's just the rule of six. It's the rule of six, rule of six. And obviously, like all announcements from the government, it has turned out to be far more unclear than 
the slogan that it's been given. You know, there was a sort of funny letter into the Financial Times that people are sharing on social media that says oh, it's illegal for seven kids to feed the ducks, but it's legal for 30 men to shoot ducks. So <laughs> it's that like people are picking this apart and rightly so. But part of the problem is while there's been a lot of piss taking about the rule of six and some quite serious commentary around people saying people aren't going to follow this, or if you do something like put a curfew on the pubs, people are going to meet up at home. What you're going to do, have cameras in people's homes. You can't, especially young people are meeting up in far greater numbers than six behind closed doors. But the difficult thing is there's no official or formal opposition to this. What's really worrying is that any kind of dissent from the official line given from the government, from the opposition Labour Party, or actually any other kind of credible public voice is really lacking. At the moment, the only real pushback in a kind of formalised sense against what the government is doing has been these protests, which, you know, are one quarter serious and three quarters conspiracy theory. And you've got no real scrutiny of what the government's doing. I mean, that you cling on to the kind of people who do say stuff. So like I've been listening to Professor Sinitra Gupta from the University of Oxford, who's an epidemiologist there, who made a really great point this week, saying, why is no one talking about herd immunity anymore? You know, herd immunity is a phrase has become tantamount to saying mass death. You know, it's it's just something that was a credible way of dealing with the virus has now become a sort of evil option. There's no discussion about the fact that Many of the experts from SAGE and otherwise have said now many times that we're going to have to live with this virus for a number of months. That's kind of out there as a fact, even from the government approved experts. And yet no one's then seemingly asking the question of, well, okay, if we're going to have to live with this, what is the amount of risk we want to take? You know, how many people are we okay with dying? Difficult questions like that, because it seems like at the moment you've got death figures in the kind of single and double digits, you know, really not very high at all in certain places. And still we're talking about a lockdown and, you know, the chaotic nature of this is extremely frustrating. The gossip that's currently circulating about whether or not Chris Whitty did or did not suggest a two week lockdown is just maddening. But the really dangerous point is it shows that we've got a government that's instituting really authoritarian policies, you know, strengthening police, calling for snitches, you know, Boris Johnson saying, I don't like sneak culture, but please, by the way, will you snitch on your neighbours? But the important thing is it's doing all these sort of authoritarian policies, but it has no authority. And that's actually an incredibly dangerous situation mm. for a government to be in because it's so unpredictable. You don't know what's coming and what's coming could be extremely repressive without us having any ability to criticise it. I think that's a really important point. It's also the more kind of weak the government becomes, the more uncertain, the more authoritarian it becomes in that respect. You know, this becomes the means through which it proves that it's doing something, that it proves that it's taking all of this seriously. And that's a really dangerous road to go down. I think the point about the rules and the rule of six being clearer was just completely rubbished by the whole appearance of Priti Patel this week across the media. She was asked about all of the various different exemptions because obviously you can have events where there are obviously more than six people, um, but there's actually a ban in law, um, as Ella was saying, on mingling. She was asked to say if two families passing each other on the way to the park talking to each other would be illegal mingling. She said yes, even though according to the legal experts, that's not the case whatsoever. She's the one who signed those regulations in this instance. She doesn't even understand 
understand what they are. And that's a really dangerous position to be in if the law is really unclear. I mean, on the one hand, it becomes kind of ridiculous if it's kind of unenforceable and not obvious to people and not easy to understand. But it also makes it far more kind of subject to the whims of police officers in many respects. We've seen that throughout the lockdown itself police either enforcing what is just government guidance or kind of freelancing on it because the rules are such that they have the kind of latitude to do that which can be really really damaging you know and the point about there being so little opposition to that is really really important on the one hand these regulations as all of the lockdown regulations so far have just been introduced at swipe of ministerial pen in this case i think they were published within half an hour before they were supposed to come into force Mm. so you couldn't even read them as as a citizen as a member of the public or as a part of the opposition that's really really toxic we've never seen this kind of rule by decree in this country and the fact that the government seems to be getting quite addicted to it is a big problem but the other problem is there's no kind of broader political opposition you know there is really the Labour Party at this point have limited themselves to picking the government up on questions of incompetence in relation to testing or this that the third they're not really challenging the premise of what it is that they're doing or even just raising reasonable concerns about people's civil liberties and social lives under this new regime and when you're in a situation where mingling is illegal in certain (laughs) situations and where snitching is being encouraged you cannot underestimate the social sickness of that the effects that that's going to have the atomizing consequences of that the way in which that's going to make people far more suspicious of one another etc these are very important things to raise but in terms of the mainstream political debate it's so narrow and limited that not only is there no formal democratic scrutiny, there's no kind of broader political pushback either because they've all just bought into this and they all buy into the idea that fundamentally how you prove you're being serious about this outbreak is by being as authoritarian as possible. And that's why we're in what feels like a just kind of unending cycle of these kinds of restrictions. And it's completely essential that there is this opposition because at the end of the day, the lockdown has fundamentally transformed the relationship between the citizen and the state. And you could see that early on from the calls to protect the NHS. Well, I thought the NHS was there to protect us, not the other way around. And with this rule of six, police chiefs had basically asked for this rule because they were finding it too difficult to enforce the previous kind of mishmash of, of guidance and exemptions. So our social lives have to be oriented around the needs of the police, again, rather than the police orienting themselves around our needs So I think there really does have to be a kind of opposition to this. And, you know, the way the law now, Luke Gittos wrote brilliantly about this on Spiked, how essentially we don't know what is illegal and what isn't legal anymore. Usually Mm. you expect that something is legal unless it's expressly forbidden. But now you have to trawl through the exemptions to find out if your, you know, quite ordinary everyday behaviour is legal. And that's a really frightening position to be in. Now is the time to learn to become more informed, creative, inspired, relaxed. You can do that all with The Great Courses Plus. I love this streaming service, especially the app, which means you can listen to a course when you're out and about or on your commute, just as you might with this podcast. Right now, I'm really enjoying a course on the fall and rise of China. The transformation of China over the centuries has been astonishing. It's gone from imperial powerhouse to backwater to the economic superpower it is today. If we want to understand the modern world, we need to understand China and its history. And this course is a fantastic place to start. With thousands of lectures on almost any topic imaginable, from the depths of the ocean to the history of Egypt to the study of DNA, and new courses are added all the time, There really is something for everyone with The Great Courses Plus. 
Every course is presented by subject matter experts from top universities and institutions. You're getting in-depth, reliable, fact-based information. And you can watch or listen from your phone or TV with the Great Courses Plus app. You can use it anywhere in the world. It makes learning incredibly easy and accessible. So make the most of your time and keep learning with The Great Courses Plus. They're offering listeners to the Spiked Podcast an amazing deal. You can get an entire month of access for free. This limited time offer won't last, so sign up today at our special URL to get started. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked now. The row over the internal market bill became even more intense this week. The government argues that without the bill, the EU could prevent food exports between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But in a joint intervention, former Prime Ministers Tony Blair and John Major denounced the bill's potential to breach the Brexit withdrawal agreement and, by extension, international law. They said it was shocking, irresponsible, wrong and dangerous. Even people outside of the UK have started rowing over the internal market bill. The US Speaker Nancy Pelosi warned that any breaking with the withdrawal agreement could jeopardise a US-UK trade deal. Presidential hopeful Joe Biden has since echoed that warning. Tom, what's your view on the week in Brexit? Well, it's been fascinating. We've seen a kind of continuation to a large extent of the sort of pearl clutching over the question of the UK reserving the right to break international law in relation to the withdrawal treaty, particularly if negotiations break down. And I think that it's worth underlining the hypocrisy of someone like Tony Blair coming out and making the intervention that he did with John Major, saying that what the government was doing was a threat to peace and to international law and probity coming from the man who launched a illegal and very disastrous war. I think it's pretty remarkable. But also, I think it's just fascinating how this discussion has carried on. People have been kind of tearing their hair out, despite the fact that what it is that the government is doing is far from the kind of horrendous neo-fascistic break with the rules-based order, something which is entirely new and frightening and dangerous. Then what it is, I mean, as Bruno Waterfield was discussing last week on the podcast, you know, many people have pointed out the number of times that the EU has been alleged to have broken international law in relation to WTO rulings on certain products that it bans, hormone beef, etc., not living up to what its commitments were in refugee conventions, etc. The fact that when Canada legalised cannabis, it did so in breach of a UN treaty that mm. it had signed, and yet no one was running around <laughs> suggesting that they were doing the equivalent of retaking control over Hong Kong. So there is this kind of pearl clutching over it. That's not to necessarily excuse what it is that the government is doing. I mean, fundamentally, it seems like the government signed up to a treaty that they knew was flawed, restrictive, and are now trying to wriggle out of it at a later date. There is an element of, if nothing else, just kind of lying to the electorate about this, you know, going mm. into the election saying that this was the deal that would take back control when there were these continuing issues, both in relation to Northern Ireland, but also state aid. One of the things that they're concerned about with the Northern Ireland protocol is the fact that not only is it going to keep Northern Ireland in the EU state aid regime, but because there is this kind of reach across, if you're a company that operates in GB, but you've also got some presence in Northern Ireland, that could also mean you are subject to those state aid rules, which is something the government's concerned about. The fact that they kind of just ignored this, or at least didn't talk about it for the period of the past few months, is a problem from a question of democratic accountability as much as anything else. But nevertheless, the response to it has has been really overblown. But again, I think it's been quite revealing insofar as I think this idea that national law has to be subservient 
to international law. I think the reason that so many of the Remainers are so keen on this, not only because it lands a blow against the government and gives them another opportunity to compare it to, you know, Orbán's Hungary and all the rest of it, is the fact that if you believe that, then it just negates and neuters democratic politics, which, as we know, can only really function at the moment in the national democratic realm. Mick Hume made this point in his column this week on Spike, where he said, to suggest that the government is breaking the law is ridiculous if you're a Democrat, because it's making law. You propose a bill, you get it voted through Parliament. That's what a democracy looks like. Mm. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that really underlines this, which whilst there is a lot of kind of, shall we say, willful hysteria, perhaps, because that's how people tend to respond to anything this government does at this point, underlying this row is something that underlied the Brexit row in the first place, which is the belief that you have to have certain aspects of politics which are put beyond the hands of democratic politics, national politics, because you have that fundamental distrust of national democratic politics. And I think so much of that informs beyond the parliamentary wranglings, which we'll see what happens in relation to the House of Lords, of course, very likely to push back against this, between all the constitutional and legal arguments that have happened so far. That, again, seems to be the nub of this, and we're seeing it kind of replayed through this internal markets bill discussion. Ella? It's become a kind of row over the law, not even a row over the actual content of what this internet market bill is about, because the state aid point is really important. We've just been talking about the fact that we've got this new rule of six in more COVID regulations, which means that the economy is going to take a greater hit. And in the back of everyone's heads is this horrible fear, genuine fear and feeling that there's really hard times to come for working people in the UK. And so you want to be in a position, presumably, where a government can take decisive action, experiment, do things that it wouldn't usually do. You know, Rishi Sunak's already proven that actually there's scope to do things that you would never have expected a Tory government to do. And having the freedom to do that and be accountable only to the voters in a nation state is more vital than ever, given this weird situation we're in after this pandemic. And so this is really actually crucial political questions that are wrapped up in a sort of legalistic argument. It's so shallow and pathetic, really, to be throwing your toys out of the pram over the fact that this might be breaking international law. And it's frustrating as well. You know, people have been rightly pointing out, and Tom rightly pointed out, the fact that, you know, it's a bit rich Tony Blair talking about this. But again, the whole point of the wrongs that Blair did in relation to the Iraq war wasn't just about sort of breaking international law. It was about waging a bloody and immoral assault on a mm. civilization. So this whole kind of row at the shallow level of legalism masks what's actually going on. And one of the m more important parts of this is, you know, it's a power struggle about who, as Mick Hume puts, who really rules in the Brexit mm. debate. That's what this is about. But the issue of Ireland is this kind of wound that keeps being reopened throughout the row over Brexit. And no one is actually talking about it in the way in which it should be talked about. The Joe Biden tweet is actually really serious and it's really interesting. You know, the idea that he said that any deal with the UK and the US would be based on respect for the Good Friday Agreement. You know, the Good Friday Agreement and the question of peace in Northern Ireland has become this thing that's not just used as a political football anymore. It's like the Bible. You can't question it. You can't have any kind of disagreement around it. And it's going to continuously be used to thwart Brexit negotiations and the progress of Brexit, despite the fact that it's 
absolute nonsense that if this, you know, trade bill went in or any kind of tweaks to the way in which goods travel across the border would suddenly result in what, you know, IRA gunmen jumping out of the bushes and launching war on the British state. I mean, it's just so ignorant of history. And actually, it's so censorious around the very necessary route that is going to have to be had at some point about the way in which Ireland's relationship with Britain is, you know, outdated to say the best. So it's one of those good examples where it seems like this is a very technical and sort of, you know, legalistic battle that's happening. But actually behind it, just scratch under the surface is the key massive questions of Brexit about democracy, about who rules and in relationship to Ireland, about the whole question of Britain's relationship with that state. It's interesting how it's in some ways it's that, you know, obviously there are the kind of echoes of the Brexit Remain arguments going on, and you can see that pretty much anyone who is still a Remainer is angry about the internal market bill and and doing all this pearl clutching stuff. And any anyone who's a Lever supports the internal market bill, basically um, down those lines. But it, it is, as Tom says, entirely possible that there could be some pushback to this bill in the Lords. But there was a really strange kind of moment where there was a real talk up of a Tory rebellion. Mm. You know, in the media, there was a, you know, they were basically on resignation watch. And in the end, actually, no one prominent resigned. Someone called Lord Keane resigned from a post. I'm not sure not many people have heard of him before. There was talk about a giant rebellion in the vote in the House of Commons, but actually the bill sailed through its second reading really comfortably. And so there was something almost, you know, like the emptiest vessel shouts the loudest kind of phenomenon where if you'd have read the commentary around the internal market bill, you'd have thought that the government would have faced a huge defeat, that Brexit was essentially over, going to be cancelled, that the Remainers were you know, strident once more because they're just so right about everything and the government's been humiliated by breaking international law. But in the end, actually, not that much happened. And as I said, the bill sailed through comfortably. Tom, do you want to add anything? I think it's also been interesting seeing the discussion about state aid and that kind of pan out and seeing a lot of kind of right-wing Brexiteers or Tory Brexiteers getting very nervous about this. Obviously, state aid is not necessarily just a issue in relation to the withdrawal agreement. It's also the huge stumbling block in relation to the trade talks. Again, the EU, you know, in one way or another are basically wanting us to follow their state aid rules in perpetuity because they're worried about what this big economy on their fringe will do and how it will compete, etc. And I think that's another kind of interesting thought line that's kind of opened up as well, because I think there are some people on the kind of right of the Brexit debate in particular, who obviously made the arguments of democracy, but again, in certain areas like this would almost rather we signed up to EU state aid rules, because that's the thing that they'd least want at all. You know, mm. again, it's this sort of thing where at least then we would be potentially limited, or at the very least, it's not worth it. And again, the question about state aid in these negotiations is, is about having the, the, the freedom to do it and then to do it in a way that we so choose. And again, I feel like for a lot of people who, again, were on the Brexit side of the argument, if you want a light touch regime in relation to that, then argue for it. Don't delight in Michel Barnier taking it away from us <laughs> and taking away that competency away from us in one way or another. And again, I think that's one of the things that's really positive about Brexit is that it's going to open up a discussion about all of these different things. It's going to open up a discussion about what kind of industrial policy you want or what kind of state aid policy you want, how, again, free from these restrictions what it is that we want to pursue. And I think it's just quite striking that even in an area like that, there is this kind of wobbling in, in some parts of certainly kind of the media Brexiteer set about what real sovereignty really means. Because again, there is this almost as much of a willingness to hand back some of those powers. So again, there's just so much that needs to be debated. But that's why it's so important that Brexit happens and it happens properly so that we can bring all these things back into proper discussion. And that's why, again, all these wranglings, whilst they feel legalistic at the moment and certainly are in the terms of the mainstream debate, at the crux of it, it is about 
taking back control properly. And we still wait to see if that's something that will happen. One thing I really love about shaving with Harry's is the smoothness. Even if I've left it a bit too long between shaves, I know that with Harry's, I'll still get a smooth and satisfying shave. The Harry's story begins with Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who are fed up with overpriced razors. They started Harry's to fix shaving. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. By taking less profit, Harry's can offer great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. You can get a Harry's trial set which includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. It's got a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, there's a travel blade cover, and it also comes with a rich lathering shave gel. Get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support our podcast and get your trial set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash spiked right now. That's harrys.com slash spiked. J.K. Rowling's new book, Troubled Blood, penned under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith, came out this week. Though before anyone had had the chance to read it, it was immediately denounced as transphobic. In one single paragraph in the 900-page novel, a murderer disguises himself wearing a wig and a woman's coat. This was enough to set the internet ablaze, and the hashtag R.I.P. J.K. Rowling started trending on Twitter. Rowling has been subjected to a vicious campaign of smears and threats ever since she started speaking out in favour of women-only spaces and the reality of biological sex. Ella, what are your thoughts on this latest anti-JK Rowling meltdown? Yeah, well, latest being the important word. JK Rowling, you know, has been the centre of any kind of discussion about trans, uh, the sort of so-called trans versus turf, that horrible word, debate. And it's particularly crazy, this thing that's happened, because I think lots of people initially when they saw that she'd published this book, viewed it as kind of like a trolling, you know, oh God, why has she come out and published this despite the fact that, you know, she's had all this attention from social media and hatred. Why do this? And you have to actually remind yourself that the reason why she's become so vocal about trans is because she actually started writing this book a long time ago. And in terms of her research around it, she herself has admitted in articles, that's why she started to get interested in the debate. But nevertheless, as you said, the crucial point is this particular book, as actually Nick Cohen mentions in his review for The Spectator, has one very mild mention of not a man in a dress, as people have been talking about on social media, but someone in a wig and a coat. So this is not a book that, you know, has a moral lesson in it to be afraid of trans people. It just, it is not. (laughs) But I think the more interesting question around this is why do people hate JK Rowling so much when it's very difficult to point to really a singular time in which she herself has been vile back or she's never met any of the real intense um, hatred of her with any kind of retaliation on the same basis. The things that she's said you might politically disagree with in terms of, you know, her ideas around 
sex or her views around same sex spaces, those things are all up for debate, but she has never come out and personally attacked a trans person or actually even said anything other than trans people should be able to live life as they want to live it. And I think the reason why she's become the center of it is because fundamentally this debate is, you know, at its heart has moved away from any kind of sensible discussion about how we might want to view gender in society. It's not about freedom anymore. It's no longer actually a sort of mildly interesting debate about how you identify and the sliding scale of gender and all those things that we might have previously talked about. It's now that the row about trans has now become do you blindly and without question repeat slogans like trans women are women? Do you blindly support and see, is the term everyone likes to say, I see trans people? Basically, do you agree to not have a debate about this? And that's why JK Rowling has become such a figure of hate because more often than not, her argument is, I think that we should be able to have a debate about this. I think we should be able to have a debate about whether women and men should have private spaces and whether or not sex is real. So, you know, this seems like another iteration of quite a shallow social media round, but actually it's a really good temperature check on the gender discussion to show that it's moved out of any realm of serious political debate, any realm of reality. It's got nothing to do with the everyday lives of trans people or women for that matter. And it's just turned into this, you know, genuine witch hunt. People are genuinely calling her a witch Mm. with what's the outcome to kill JK Rowling, to metaphorically kill her off from social life. What would that do for trans people? It's getting increasingly hard to take this seriously. Tom? I mean, that was the hashtag again, wasn't it, this week? R.I.P. J.K. Rowling, which yeah. is quite sinister. Um, and the fact that you see, even though it's slightly jokey, discussions and even little videos of book burnings, you know, <laughs> it is really striking. And it, it does remind me of, though, you know, sometimes this comparison, you know, we can use it a lot, but the, the philistinism and kind of religious zealotry of this is very reminiscent of the old authoritarian, like, religious right in the US. Nick Gillespie, friend of Spike, pointed this out on, on Twitter, that, um, you know, Harry Potter books were burnt by crazy religious conservatives in the US because <laughs> they thought they were occultists. There was one, I looked it up in 2001, there was a church in New Mexico. They burned hundreds of copies of Harry Potter books because they thought it was inspiring children to study the devil and all this sort of stuff. And this preacher and his followers admitted that they'd never read the books and then also tossed some Stephen King novels in for good measure, which I thought was quite funny. But again, it's that thing of like, on one level, everything Ellis just says is completely correct. This is a group of people who have decided that they're right about something and will punish anyone who disagrees with them. But at the same time, there's this incredibly unthinking aspect to it. They don't know what JK Rowling thinks, really. You know, mm. if you talk to some of these people, we'll talk to people who've just picked up the broad strokes of this debate. They were like, oh, she hates trans people. She's a transphobe. She's horrendous. If you actually read anything she said on the subject, it's very measured, very liberal, and just suggests that biological sex is still a thing and that needs to be taken into account when you're talking about women's spaces or whatever. So they don't know what she thinks. In a way, they don't really know what they think. I don't really, <laughs> in, in so many ways, because it is just kind of shrill, intolerant response to the hate figure. There's no real debate going on here whatsoever. And they're going around punishing people and trying to expunge them and their work for what are effectively the most minor of transgressions. This isn't, again, her being some hateful, horrendous figure who no one would want anything to do with. It's about disagreeing on a particular issue. So again, I think even though it can be a little bit overdone, that philistinism, that religious zealotry, that kind of unthinking mob behaviour 
is really, really striking. And it's just funny that time and again, you see those old tactics that were previously deployed by the kind of religious right, even in this case to the same target, are being repeated by people who like to think of themselves as incredibly progressive and liberal and all the rest of it. Well, you, you resisted um, invoking Godwin's law by making the book burning analogy. <laughs> I thought I'd sidestep it that way, yeah. But I mean, there is, I think there is something incredible. I mean, you, I'm always reluctant to, you know, psychologize you know, political movements and to say that there's something psychologically wrong with people who think X, Y, and Z. But there is something really striking about the fact that, you know, it's not only do they want to burn J.K. Rowling's book, literally every reference to Rowling has been taken off Pottermore website, which she <laughs> created, um, which is part of her, you know, part of her work. She's been disowned by, you know, the Harry Potter actors and actresses. Why can these people literally not tolerate her presence? It really is like she's some kind of wicked witch or, or she-devil that needs to be cast out. It doesn't even feel like a metaphor to say that, that that's how these people feel. Ella? Yeah, well, I mean, that is a really great point to show how the debate about gender has changed because previously you would have a kind of idea that there was a value in transgressing in rebelling against ideas of gender, you know, the kind of common idea of all these non-binary people was, you know, I don't care that you're some kind of square, straight person. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be different. I'm not going to play by your rules. And, you know, there was something in that in terms of shaking up all gender norms. And there were some positives in that. You could have a kind of genuine discussion about whether or not having a kind of blind belief in there are men and there are women and they all act like this and we've got to stay apart was a positive. But now it's flipped because now the main tenet of the trans politics, trans activism is you must accept us. And not only must you accept us, but any idea that goes against our established view of not even a kind of rebellion against gender, but actually a reification of it that we, I am, this gender and you must accept me as this. It's no longer the kind of interesting rebellious political idea that it might have once been years ago. And so you end up actually feeling not like a square anymore, but you end up feeling like the rebel for saying, hang on a minute, you're being really quite strict about mm -hmm. gender norms. Take, for example, that's why so many radical feminists are very angry about the whole issue of trans is because a lot of the time, people who say trans women are women are going on the basis of some really sexist and shallow views of what a woman means and mm. what that particular gender means. So, you know, it's a funny thing to think that what once was a rebellion against the establishment has now become such an established view that you have something as old school as suggesting book burnings <laughs> to defend something as square as accepting specific and very narrow definitions of gender. Finally, I mean, like, obviously, a lot of these developments are quite sinister. They're very illiberal. You see any sort of discussion about book burnings, we've all got to be quite alarmed. But we also can't get away with just how childish this behaviour is. Mm. I mean, the whole kind of ongoing fandom around Harry Potter, even in millennials into their 20s and 30s, I've always found a little bit odd. But this is even worse. You know, how dare this woman not agree with me on absolutely everything? And the fact there was one story, there's a shop in Australia that has stopped selling this book because it wants to, quote, make trans people feel safe and their staff would rather not um unpack books that, quote, make them sad. I don't know why these people ever leave the house. You know, aside from all the other arguments around free speech, the importance of debate, the importance of tolerance, all the rest of it, if you cannot operate in a world in which you see anything that slightly upsets you and needs to be, you know, shunned from you, you're not built for this world, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And I think the J.K. Rowling debate has, has demonstrated that once again. So much of this intolerance is just babyish. 
Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.